Welcome to Notes from the Backpack, a PTA podcast. Get the inside scoop on how to help your child become successful in and out of school. As parents, we know that your child can sometimes forget to share the notes from their backpack. That's why we've launched this podcast just for you. Welcome to today's episode of Notes from the Backpack, a PTA podcast. I'm LaWanda Tony, And I'm Helen Westmoreland, and we are your co-hosts. Today, we're going to talk about racism and how we can raise kids who advocate for racial justice. Whether it's talking about the Black Lives Matter movement, police brutality, or who's been most affected by the pandemic, race has become an unavoidable topic for many parents. It can feel intimidating to start conversations about race and racial justice with your children, but we can't let that stop us. We're so glad that we have Andrew Grant Thomas and Melissa Giroux, the founders of Embrace Race, here to speak with us today and advise us on how to talk about these issues and lead by example when it comes to racial justice. Andrew has spent his career as a racial justice advocate, serving as a racial and social justice consultant for the last 23 years. Previously, he has served in a variety of roles at nonprofits, including a deputy director of the Kerwin Institute for the Study of Race and Ethnicity and the director of Color Lines Conference at the Harvard Civil Rights Project. Melissa has dedicated her career to supporting the learning and life outcomes for underserved students and families, especially immigrant girls and girls of color. Prior to co-founding Embrace Race, she served as a consultant for several organizations, including the Gates Foundation, Spring Point Schools, MG Consulting, and the Carnegie Corporation. Andrew and Melissa have two daughters, ages 9 and 11. Thank you guys so much for joining us today. Hi, we're really excited to be here with you today. So thanks for asking us. So let's dive right on in. Andrew and Melissa, tell us a little bit about yourselves and what inspired you to start Embrace Race. We started Embrace Race in April of 2016, really inspired by our children and by other people's children. We ourselves have been thinking about race and working in equity issues for our whole lives, both personally, professionally. I'm a mixed-race woman, Black-white, who grew up the child of parents who are immigrants to this country, and I grew up in a Puerto Rican neighborhood that was underserved and disinvested in. So I have many privileges, but I haven't had the privilege of not seeing the way our country is deeply racialized and unequal in a racial way. Andrew can tell you about his experience as well. He's African-American. He is an immigrant from Jamaica himself. So again, both personally and professionally, as you laid out, we thought we'd be more prepared than we actually felt when we were parents. <laughs> because mm -hmm. I think when you finally do have a child, you realize there's this window in which you just feel so vulnerable because you're experiencing vicariously through the eyes of your child, the world anew and the world that is racialized anew. And you worry, gosh, how do I do this with my own child different now? But some things are the same. Mm -hmm. And emotionally, it's really hard. So we were really looking for support. And that's why we started Embrace Race. Andrew, maybe you want to say more. I really devoted my whole career to 
race, race as a point of departure for talking about immigration and criminal justice and transportation, education, housing. And then we become parents. And we have these two brown-skinned, mixed-race girls. And the question is not only what is the best that we can do to prepare these girls, not simply to be acted on in the world because they're girls of color, who will become women of color. Mm -hmm. That's obviously hugely important to us. But they will also be actors in the world. They'll be moving through the world, schools and workplaces and social circles, having an influence on others. And that's a hugely important role to play for all of us. Yeah, absolutely. The last piece I would add is how our children, both our two literal children, but your children and your nieces, your nephews, all of those children will remake the world collectively, mm -hmm. they will remake the world increasingly as they grow up. So the question is, what sensibilities, what analysis, what understanding of the world, what understanding of other children, their peers, will they grow up with? Thank you. So I'm going to jump right in. <laughs> I'm obviously a white woman. I was raised in the South and went to public schools. I don't remember a single conversation in my household ever explicitly about race. And now, obviously, with the young child, I think about that in a different lens. So I'm curious from your all's perspective, having spoken to thousands of parents across the country on this topic, why is it important and what does it take to undo that historical precedent for many of us white parents particularly who didn't have that experience themselves? Mm -hmm. That's a great question, Helen. Well, first of all, the conversation is already happening without you. So your child and every child, no matter how they're positioned racially, is really bombarded with messages about race all the time. They're also bombarded with messages about gender and about class and about other things, about nationality, mm -hmm. about power. And when they walk into a store, the advertisements, the dolls, when they watch TV, when they go to school and they're early readers, a lot of those are not very diverse. They're really learning who's valued, who has power, who's more important, who's beautiful, all of that, whose neighborhood appears to be wealthier and more invested in. They're learning all of that really early. And if you don't talk to your kids about this conversation that they're already involved in, then you're really leaving them alone to sort through quite toxic messages that might not yield a good outcome in terms of the attitudes that they develop and the way they act and show up in the world. And the research has showed us that as well, that being quote-unquote colorblind, that's a very strong ideology in the United States. Being colorblind actually teaches kids that it's shameful somehow to talk about race mm -hmm. and that it's not important and that this is the way things are. This is the way things are supposed to be. You see those inequities and maybe that's just how things are supposed to be, which the implications in that are about inferiority of some and superiority of others. So it's really important as uncomfortable as parents are, particularly white parents, but a lot of non-white parents as well, have not grown up speaking about race in their households. So there's this discomfort that prevents people from starting, but it's really important to not wait for the discomfort to go away. Mm. If we 
are not vigilant and thoughtful and informed and proactive with our kids, they will believe that what they see is just the way it is, that it's natural, it's inevitable, it's even normative. A great majority of the lives we've constructed for ourselves are constructed lives. Mm -hmm. How we are collectively is what we have created for ourselves, which is to say that we could create something different. We can, and in fact, will change things. In 20 years, a great many things will be different than they are now. The question is, what are we bringing to that construction and reconstruction of what we're about, what our schools are about, what the criminal justice system looks like, whether or not lack of affordable housing is seen as a problem that we want to address? Mm -hmm. I just wanted to add, a lot of times, people don't know how to start the conversation with their kids. There is some anxiety around it. You don't know if they're too young or the right way to approach race with children. Do you have advice for our families listening? Definitely. My advice would be to start early, start now. Kids are noticing at three months skin color and things that later they'll understand as racial difference. We really need to, from the beginning, talk to them even when they're not talking, expose them in your neighborhood if you can, in their schools when you're choosing schools, their daycare, in terms of who are the people raising them, bring into the household, who do they have over for dinner, all of those ways that you're exposing kids to people who are like them and who are different from them and showing that you value that. And I would say also very early using books, for example, starting to build the vocabulary and the habit of, oh, we are not afraid to talk about different. It is not taboo to talk about skin color. So even describing in your books how little baby books they have, the big faces of kids, make sure you have diverse faces and start to build the vocabulary the way you would mm -hmm. parts of the body. Just, oh, a brown face and a light brown face and a white face and that hair is blonde. So that's how to start it with young kids. Mm. But if you haven't started, it's also not too late. The place you want to start is to ask them questions. So we were on diversity committee at our kids' preschool with a parent. The parent was telling us that the child had this experience of having really well-meaning teachers read about Martin Luther King to the class, and the child was Indigenous American. And the child went home and said, my friend told me that I'm going to have the bad jobs because I'm brown. And that was actually mm. a book in which the people in the book who had brown skin couldn't get certain jobs. And that's still true mm -hmm. today to a different extent. If you leave it to the school or leave it to a book or leave it to anything, you don't know how that child is synthesizing all of the input they're mm -hmm. getting. So it's really important to ask questions about what's going on at school, what's going on with their friend group. Do they notice any people who are favored in the classroom? Who do they like most in the classroom and just get an informed assessment of how they're thinking about race. Those are great ways mm -hmm. to start the conversation, to be a more informed person about your particular kid because you're the expert in your kid. So you know where to take the conversation from there. And you also know you can ask questions whether the child is very young or a teenager and you know in talking to them when their eyes are glazing over because you're trying to explain something, maybe you're not <laughs> reaching them. Maybe you've gone over their heads. So it doesn't take a PhD 
in child development or racial identity development to know that you have skills <laughs> just as a thoughtful, connected parent. Mm. Yeah. The one piece I wanted to add is also be forthright about your own attitudes, thinking, history with race. So, Helen, when you say you didn't have these conversations, that's true for a great many people. Talk about that. And race is typically a fraught topic in this country. It's hard for a lot of people. So there can be a lot of anxiety around it. I think share that as soon as you're able to be open about that with your child. A lot of people will say, gosh, I live in my friendship circle, my neighborhood, my community, my schools are racially homogeneous. So it's hard. Okay, well, first of all, that is a choice. I'm not saying it's an easy choice for everyone to change that situation, but it is a choice. But if that's the situation you're committed to, well, talk about that. Talk about why does our neighborhood look so different from some other neighborhood that we drive through? Again, mm. let's not normalize it. Mm -hmm. And then if you don't know, we can actually do some research on that. That's a great thing to do with your seven-year-old. Let's dig into why our neighborhood looks like this and why other neighborhoods look different. So churn it and have the conversation. Yeah, I think what Andrew was saying that oftentimes we do hear that, oh, I really want my kid to have a diverse circle. I want to have a diverse circle, but we just can't in our neighborhood and I don't want to tokenize someone. And there's a lot of hemming and hawing, but they often don't tell their kids that it bothers them. So living in that all-white neighborhood, that says a lot to your kid. And you really have to work mm -hmm. and be in conversation and put all that on the table. I'm nervous approaching someone to be my friend if they're a person of color, if you're a white person saying this, because why would they want to be friends with me for X, Y, Z? Just really being vocal about your anxieties. Again, depending on your kid's age, but you can talk about what makes you uncomfortable or the problem that you want to solve with your kid at any age. Absolutely. I think that's important. Looking at that lens for parents of different racial backgrounds, because some parents don't have the luxury of sitting with that anxiety. They have right. to, particularly parents of color, talk to their kids about that. So it really does behoove all parents and especially white parents to have that conversation. I want to ask you, Given that anti-racism, racial justice, the Black Lives Matter movement is on media more than it's been portrayed in media before, and in some very difficult and violent ways for kids to grapple with, how have you seen parents and how do you advise parents to talk about police brutality and what's going on around that right now? There's a lot to say here. People who identify as white and are identified as white, and people who are not identified as white are somewhat differently situated. So white-identified people have always been and remain by far the numerical majority in this country, and they have a huge share of the power in this country. There was actually a New York Times study of 922 powerful people in this country, which came out within the last month. And it's not only obvious things like the fact that 44 out of the 45 presidents we've had have been white men, but they looked at lawmakers, top business leaders, police chiefs, presidents of elite universities, Hollywood studio heads, and a whole bunch of people who would agree have a tremendous amount of clout, influence, et cetera. But roughly 80% of those people were white. 
So that means why people are somewhat differently situated in terms of their influence over how things go, certainly around race. At the same time, it's really important for us to appreciate that people of color are not by any means simply victims, and that the racial dynamics in this country aren't only about people who are white and people who are not white, or people who are black and people who are not black. It's Black people and Latinx folks and Asian Americans and white people. And of course, within each of those groups, there's tremendous diversity. So as a Black man with biracial children who are Black and white, and I think Melissa would agree with this, what we're trying to do is, yes, they will be acted on, as I said at the very beginning, but they will also move through the world and they will act on others. They will have ideas about these different groups of people. They will act often in accordance with those ideas. And we feel as much responsibility for hopefully inculcating in them healthy attitudes about other children of color. Half of the children in public schools are children of color. In a great many places, a great many schools, a great many cities, even states, the action among people of color and children of color is actually the most salient part of what's happening racially in that place. So if people of color don't learn to deal with each other, see each other as fully human beings across lines of raceness in the city, we're going to be in trouble. Yeah, how you have the conversation about police brutality, racialized violence, is really different if your child is from a targeted group. It's also true that Black people are positioned differently and Black boys are positioned differently than Black girls and then Indigenous folks and then Latinx folks. So it really depends on, again, you as a parent are the expert in your child. You know their context. You know how real and close that violence or how real being a target is for that child or not. And you need to, again, ask them questions about what they've heard, what they're thinking about, what they've heard. Make sure not to show them videos yourself of police brutality, of murders. There's been a lot of that happening, and that's very traumatic for all kids, but especially kids from targeted groups. Other than that, showing your own feelings, your own sadness about a murder that's happened, but saying there are good people, including us, who are trying to make this better, and naming some of those people. We don't have to look back for heroes. There are so many heroes right now who are becoming progressive DAs or progressive mayors or climbing flagpoles to take down the Confederate flag. So we have to both express the sadness and tell our kids we're going to try to keep them as safe as we can. And then also talk about how there really is movement. Right. Thank you. So we've been hearing the word anti-racist a lot lately. Can you help us define that for our audience? What does that mean to you? The idea that you can't be neutral. Ibram Kendi is the one who's really popularized this idea of anti-racism lately. And that's maybe his biggest central point is you can be racist or anti-racist, not in some essential way, not in terms of who you are as a person, but in terms of what you do which is really important. And I also love that emphasis on behavior, because that's really a nice contrast with the way we tend to think about racism as this attitudinal thing, 
We talk about bias and bigotry and prejudice, and it's not that those are irrelevant. We suppose that someone who has deep bigotry toward members of another group would probably act accordingly. I care, and I would say that we should all care less about what's in someone's head than in what they do. What they do is what really matters. I think of a friend mm-hmm. of mine, wealthy white woman in Atlanta, who said she was literally walking along pushing her expensive baby stroller, as she put it. And she was thinking about her support for Black Lives Matter. This was about four or five years ago. And she said she literally stopped on the corner of the street because she thought, well, what does that even mean? But she said, my husband doesn't know that I support Black Lives Matter because it's never left Mm. my head. This is the critical thing. Mm -hmm. It's not enough to feel bad about things or abstractly support this or be against that. What do you actually do about it? So I love anti-racist insofar as it says we need to do something There are no sidelines. The sidelines that maybe you thought you could stand on, those have disappeared if they were ever there. And it's one of the really nice things, I think, about seeing all those white faces right in the front of protests and so on. I will say one thing I don't love about anti-racism is I think a positive framing, people respond better to that. What are we for? Anti-racism suggests, well, you're against racism. What exactly do we mean by that? In any given instance, if something or some things are promoting racial unfairness, racial injustice, racial inequality, preferably let's talk about what that is. Because if we're not precise about what it is, then it's hard to see how we can undo it. I appreciate that. I just had one more question about, as we all know, we're in the age of COVID. And how can families work with their... (laughs) Right? We're here. Our worlds are upside down. I know. (laughs) <laughs> yes, our worlds are a little different. Is that why I'm in my closet? <laughs> yes. How can families work with their schools to encourage these positive conversations about race and equity? How can families talk to their schools about it, especially during COVID? How does that work? That's a great question. So I think the first thing to do is to not assume adversarial relationship with the school. Mm-hmm. They've had to think about this, go to them and Find out what they're thinking. Find out what their plan is and how you can support. Also find out whose needs are being centered because families in need in COVID and in other times, including families of Mm -hmm. color, really need to be centered in the conversation. So those are some of the questions to be asking. So one way to think about it is any school has a bunch of stakeholders. There are a bunch of different people in the mix who have different roles And if you, as a parent, let's say, or a guardian, if you are dissatisfied with what your school is doing or not doing, the path toward a positive conversation about race, racism, educational equity can be stuck in any number of places. So we've definitely had the experience of having wonderful individual teachers who want to do really good work, but they are not supported in doing that work. Mm. I'm thinking of a specific teacher. She wanted to do some really good work around MLK Day. She wanted to, as you put it, push the envelope a bit. Mm -hmm. So one of those stakeholder groups for her were the parents of the children in her class. So you're talking about 30, 40 parents and guardians, possibly, who could learn what Mm -hmm. she's doing and respond to it in any number of ways, not all of them positive. So what she had to anticipate is parents who say, look, my kid is too young for you to be doing this. Or maybe my kid isn't too young, but I don't like what you're actually doing. Then she's thinking, 
if that happens and I go to the administration or the parents go to the administration, will they have my back? Mm. So there's a lot of different possibilities. But I think as Melissa was saying, let's not assume that because you're not seeing what you'd like to see, that you don't have possible allies in the classroom, in the administration, among other parents. Let's approach other families of need, meaning not simply families of color. We shouldn't assume that families of color are being ill-served, but it does happen disproportionately that they are. So let's pay attention to those voices. Let's pay attention to the voices of poor white families whose needs may be ill-served as well. Let's make sure that those voices get into the conversation about what we're doing, what more we could do. And then let's see if we can actually work together. This has been an incredible conversation. We really appreciate both of your insights and advice to us as people and our listeners. Mm -hmm. And we want to give you a chance to share a takeaway. So, Andrew, you could start. If there's one thing you really want to be sure families walk away from today's conversation with, what would that be? A lot of parents and grandparents and teachers and others come to us because something has happened. Something's happened in the world. You think of Charlottesville, you think of the protests, something's happened at school, the child has said something, overheard something, has a question. And many parents and others, understandably, they're wondering, I want to nurture a child who will be racially inclusive and be smart about race and be open and all those. I want to nurture a better person, which is wonderful. And it's clearly a starting point. And that's the premise of what we do. And there's a bigger picture to it, which is all of our children, whether they are two or nine or 19, they and we, because we're still in the picture, we and those children, those nieces and nephews and grandchildren, all, whatever our relationship to them, collectively are going to decide the future of this country. It may sound a little bit grandiose, but... The U.S. has often been promoted as a big experiment in multiracial democracy. And the question is, how is that going to go? That's what's at stake. So together, we're doing this. Melissa and I are helping spearhead this work because we believe that the choices we make collectively will absolutely make a difference. And the choices you make will too. And let's do it together. Thank you. Melissa, how about you? Any final advice for families or things you want them to take away? Yeah, I would underline that they should start now in educating themselves and talking to their kids, modeling for their kids racially just behavior. It's never too early, and it's not enough for our kids to be nice. Our kids need to understand what justice looks like and to... Mm -hmm be able to work collectively to pursue those just goals. Another thing I would say is it's hard work, but our mission in part at Embrace Race is to make this challenging work easier. And there are a lot of resources and community spaces that we offer that help parents, caregivers, teachers develop a practice around guiding racially just kids and around their own learning and evolution. And we need to raise kids who are prepared rather than protected. We need to prepare them to see those things and to act appropriately. 
And I want to just call out for our listeners, your website, embracerace.org, is really, really chock full of some great resources and places to get started or to continue, depending on where you are with your own family. Are there any other places or resources you guys want to call out for families as they're on this journey? If there is one place to start, we have a fairly recent piece called 16 Ways to Help Children Become Thoughtful, Informed, and Brave About Race. I think each of those 16 ways is well-grounded, and there's, of course, a lot more to be said about each of them, but you're not alone. Think on it yourself. If you have a partner, think on it with your partner, with your friends, with others who are invested in doing this work and guarantee that it's not about being perfect. It's just about doing better. And we can do better. We can all do better wherever we are. Yeah. Let's do better, y'all. Let's do better. (laughs) (laughs) Let's do better. I like that a lot. We're starting today with the conversation with you all. Thank you again for helping us today. Thanks, folks. Thank you. Thanks so much. And to our audience listening, thank you for joining us. For more resources related to today's episode, check out notesfromthebackpack.com. Thanks for joining us and see you guys next time. Thank you for tuning in to Notes from the Backpack, a PTA podcast. Be sure to follow us on social media at National PTA and online at pta.org forward slash backpack notes.